Most people are familiar with the movie Titanic. It's one of the most popular movies of all time, and you may remember the story. It's really about a young woman named Rose, and it's not so much about a ship sinking uh, as it is a love story between Rose and a man named Jack Dawson. Now, Hollywood has its own way of sort of promoting its uh, lack of morality, and so I'm not endorsing any of those sorts of things. But in that movie, there is a stunning line. It just, it grips you. I remember the first time I heard the line, it sticks with you. And it comes from when Rose was sort of recounting what happened to her. She says, but you know there was a man, but now you know there was a man named Jack Dawson and that he saved me. And here is the gripping line that just goes over and over in your brain again. In every way that a person can be saved. In every way a person can be saved. And it makes you think, how many different ways can a person be saved? You see, what Rose is alluding to here is, is the fact that he did literally save her from physical death when the Titanic sank. <clears throat> but there's so much more to it than just that. That in her case, he saved her from a loveless marriage. He saved her from loneliness. He saved her from enslavement to a certain kind of lifestyle. And with that one statement, all of a sudden the idea that to be saved is a more fully orbed idea that it's a deeper and richer concept than we had perhaps initially thought? Well, that's a beautiful picture for what God has done for us. See, last week we talked about the idea of sin. We talked about it as living death, and we looked at a very powerful verse in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, and I read last week to us, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So important is that phrase that Paul repeats it again in verse 8 of Ephesians 2. It is by grace you have been saved. <clears throat> but we didn't explain what that meant. We just simply read the text. This morning, what I'd like to do is talk about what does it mean to be saved? To understand in a more fully orbed way the salvation that God gives to us in Christ. Yes, at one hand, we can simply say we are saved by grace. But on the other hand, it's worth thinking about all the different ways that God has saved us. This one idea that you can come at from different angles. So if you have your Bible, would you turn this morning not to the book of Ephesians yet, but to the book of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, it's page 797 in the Bibles that the church provides. Romans chapter 3. As we look at what it means that we are saved by grace, what I want to give you this morning is four different pictures of salvation, or if you will, four different ways of looking at being saved by grace. Now, three of these are put together in a beautiful passage in the middle of Romans 3, so we're going to start there. 
the fourth comes out of the text that we are in in Ephesians chapter 2. So we'll look at that in just a, a little bit. Now as we go through and I give you these four angles, if you will, on salvation, for each one of them I'm going to give you a theological word that represents that perspective. Along with that theological word, I want to give you an image, an image for you to have in your mind that sort of helps explain salvation from that perspective, okay? Let me read for you now Romans 3, verses 23 to 26, and we'll dive in. Paul says, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I read that verse last week, so we're just picking up from where we were last week. And are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance, He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so that He might be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now this is a beautiful, rich, deep, confusing passage. So as we walk through this, and I explain from this passage three of our four perspectives on salvation, I don't want it simply to be a heady idea that's off in the clouds. So what I'd like you to do is have in mind a particular person as we go through this time this morning. Now, it's a hypothetical person. He's not a real person, but I want to use him as a way of teaching through this. And I want you to imagine him. We're going to call him Sam. He's a 20-something-year-old young male. Sam's had a number of difficult things happen to him and that he has done. As a result, he is filled with anger and rage. It's just a part of who he is. He's regularly engaged in physical fighting because of that rage. And in fact, he recently was involved in a bar brawl for which he now is facing potential criminal charges. Sam has had a pretty good job for uh, the first few years he's been working, but most of the money that he's made, he has wasted on strip clubs and pornography. Sam is estranged from his mom. He's not talked to her for four or five years. He has some relationship with his dad, but it's poor at best. Perhaps most difficultly of all, a couple of years ago, Sam was driving his car under the influence of alcohol, and his younger brother was riding in the passenger seat. They were in an accident, and his brother was paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of his life. And Sam lives with the guilt of having done that every day of his life. So with this hypothetical person, Sam, in mind, what does it mean for salvation to come to him? What does it mean for him to be saved? Let's look now at four different angles of viewing Sam's salvation. 
The first one comes in verse number 25. I'm not going to take these in the order they're presented in Romans 3. I'm going to take them in logical order instead. In the middle of verse 25, Paul says God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. So image number one and word number one, I want you to think of the word atonement. Atonement is the first angle that we're going to view the act of salvation. Now some of you are familiar with other theological language and you may have heard the term propitiation. That's the same basic concept here. You could translate this Greek word either propitiation or sacrifice of atonement. Both are the same idea in mind. And the image as we think about atonement is that of the criminal justice system. So the picture up here is of a prison. And the idea is, is that when people break laws, when people sin, there is a punishment that is required to pay for the damage that has been done. That's the idea of atonement or propitiation has to do with the criminal justice system. So think about our young man, Sam, for a moment. What emotion do you think runs through God's brain as he looks at Sam and sees his anger and his rage, and especially as he watches Sam take out that anger on others through physical violence? What emotion goes through God's heart as he looks at Sam driving under the influence of alcohol? and permanently injuring his brother. Well, certainly the emotion of sadness. But what if it was your child that he physically beat? Or it was your son who was in the passenger seat? What other emotion would be running through your brain? Anger. See, that's the problem with sin is that it angers God. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, the wrath of God is currently being revealed. Not in the future, that's true, but right now God is angry against all the godlessness and wickedness of men and women who suppress the truth by their wickedness, is that when we sin, it angers God. We are hurting the people that He loves. We are destroying the creation that is good and perfect, and it makes Him angry, and His justice demands that there be punishment for sin. In the same way you look at somebody in a car accident who's driving under the influence where there has been fatalities or injuries and you think there needs to be justice. There needs to be punishment. So it is with our sin. But the good news in Romans 3 is that God says that he has presented Jesus as atonement which means that he takes the punishment for us. And remember, it's an image, a word that belongs in the criminal justice system. 
that Jesus is given as a sacrifice of atonement, meaning that he is given as someone to take the penalty or the punishment that sin demands for us. Isaiah 53 perhaps says it better than anywhere. Speaking of Jesus and his cross, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we consider him stricken by God, smitten, killed by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced, not for his own transgressions, but for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have sinned and gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. But the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. That Jesus is the sacrifice of atonement. He is the one who absorbs the punishment that our sins were due. You see, somehow, in God's grace, He is able to see Jesus as the one who is filled with rage and anger, engaged in physical fights and barroom brawls, that somehow it was Jesus driving the car under the influence in which Sam's brother was injured, that God is able to see Jesus as the one who did that so that Jesus might be punished by death on a cross instead of us. What it means for Jesus to be a sacrifice of atonement, what it means for us to be saved, is that we are saved from the punishment our sin deserves. That we're saved from the wrath of God. That every single person in this room has done something that angers God. Many things that anger God. But instead of him taking out his wrath on us, he's taken it out on Christ. And we, therefore, are saved from the wrath of God and the punishment of sin. That's the first way of viewing what Paul means when he says, for by grace you have been saved. It's the idea of the criminal justice system and that atonement or propitiation has been accomplished for us in Christ. Punishment has happened to him so that we might be free. The second word or idea comes in verse number 24. Right in the middle it says, through the redemption. Redemption is our second angle at looking at this event of salvation. And the image that I want you to have in mind is not a criminal justice system or a prison for this angle. What I want you to have in mind is a marketplace. You see a picture up there, it's sort of a developing world bazaar or marketplace where goods are being traded and bought. And that's because the word redemption is a financial word. 
It's a word that has to do with monetary transactions. We still kind of use it a little bit today if we talk about redeeming a coupon. That means that you use your coupon to purchase something else and you redeem it. The word redemption means using one thing to purchase another. See, the problem with sin is not only does it anger God, it also enslaves us. Romans chapter 6 verse 20 says this, when you were slaves to sin, everybody, slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. See, Paul's saying, look, you knew better. You didn't want to do those things. You were ashamed at the way your life was turning out, but there was nothing you could do about it because you were enslaved to the power of sin. In Sam's case, he doesn't like being filled with anger. He doesn't like going to strip clubs and viewing pornography. He doesn't like the fact that he's got a broken relationship with his parents. That's not the way he wanted his life to turn out. No eight-year-old wakes up and says, that's what I want. But the good things he wants to do in life, he can't make himself do. And the stuff he hates deep in his soul that he really doesn't want to be doing, he just keeps doing it. And if you asked him, Sam, do you want to stop? The answer is yes. But if you asked, Sam, can you stop? The answer is no. Because he's a slave to sin. See, we play around with sin because we think it's beneath us. But it's a power above us. And when we sin, it enslaves us. But in Romans chapter 3, Paul says that Christ is our redemption. And the idea is not just a market. The idea is a slave market where someone is bringing humans who are enslaved and they are for sale. And what Paul is saying is, is that Christ in his cross redeems us from the slave market. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that same passage continues. <clears throat> we were slaves to sin, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. What that verse is saying is the price of purchasing somebody enslaved to sin is death. That's the, that's the going rate. And God in Jesus, through his death, purchases us from the power of sin. It's a different way of looking at the same event, a financial way, that God sees you and I on the block enslaved to sin and he says, I'll take them. And the price, the death of his son. And with Christ, he purchases us, setting us free not only from the punishment of sin, but also from the power of sin. That's the second image of what it means to be saved. It's the idea of redemption, of a marketplace. And God, the buyer, pays with the cash of Jesus what it costs for us 
to be set free. And to be saved is to be redeemed, to be purchased. There is a third word in Romans chapter 3. It's at the beginning of verse 24 this time. Paul says, and are justified freely. The word is justification. And the image is not a market, but a courtroom. The word justify is a legal term. It has to do with guilt. When someone is justified, they are declared to be not guilty. There was a headline, I think, this week in the paper talking about uh, some cops who had used force. And the headline read, the cops were justified in their use of force, meaning that in the court they were found to be not guilty. They used force appropriately. That's what that word means. It has the idea of dealing with the issue of guilt. See, the problem with sin is not only does it anger God, and not only does it enslave us, it makes us guilty. How do you think Sam feels when he sees his paralyzed brother? He thinks to himself, why did he have to be in the car that night? Why did I have to choose to drink? Why am I not paralyzed instead of him? It is Sam's fault. There's no way around that. He is guilty. And that kind of guilt is debilitating. We know that, don't we? We may not have done that very deed, but we've seen in our own lives how we've treated our children or our spouse or people in our church, and we've seen the destruction that our anger or our low self-esteem or our alcoholism or whatever it might be, we've seen the destruction and we know full well it's our fault. We are guilty. Paul says in Romans 3 that because the Father was willing to see Jesus as the one driving the car under the influence, that he is now free to declare us innocent because Christ has been declared guilty. It's crazy. It's crazy. How can that happen? See, God has to be just, our, our passage says, but he also wants to be the justifier of those who've committed crimes. How's he going to do both? Well, the way he does it, every crime deserves a punishment. Every crime makes someone guilty. But by being willing to declare Christ guilty, God is now free to declare us innocent. When a murder happens, only one person can be guilty of it. And in our case, the Father has chosen to see Christ as the guilty one. What that means for Sam is, is that when God looks at Sam, salvation for Sam, he doesn't see him as the driver of that car. That no matter how Sam sees himself, the God of the universe who is the ultimate judge 
views Sam as being completely and totally innocent. That'll take Sam the rest of his life to get used to that idea. But the third angle at which when Paul says, for by grace we have been saved, this is what he has in mind. We have been saved from the guilt of sin. That the crimes that we have committed, we have been tried for and found, crazily enough, not guilty. Because God has found Jesus guilty instead. If you have your Bible, turn over now to Ephesians chapter 2. We want to look at the fourth angle or picture of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, it's page 827. Listen as I read verse 12. Paul says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in this world. Without God. Separated from the people of God. See, the problem with sin is not only does it anger God, not only does it enslave us, Not only does it make us guilty, perhaps worst of all, it causes us to be alone because it severs all our relationships. It severs our relationships with God and with others. Even in the movie Titanic, Rose expresses something of this sentiment. In the midst of her living death, she says, I felt like I was standing at a great precipice with no one to pull me back, no one who cared, no one who even noticed. That's the loneliness or the solitude or the aloneness that sin brings. And so the fourth picture of looking at salvation has the word reconciliation that goes with it. And the image I want you to understand with this view is not a prison or a market or a courtroom, but a family. See, in Sam's case, the broken relationships with his parents, the fights what he did to his brother, and especially his relationship with God, sin has severed all of those things. And Sam is alone. No matter who he's with or who he's around, he is alone. But verse 13, Ephesians 2 says, But now in Christ... You who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. The word for this is reconciliation. It's in verse 16 of this passage. In this one body, 
to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which He put to death their hostility. The idea is is that in Jesus, God is fixing the effects of sin. Now, there are still consequences to sin, but this is something different. The ultimate effect of sin is that it severs relationships. We were created as relational beings. To not have true relationship is the worst thing that can happen to us. To be separated from God and have no relationship. To be separated from one another. There is no worse fate for any human being but that. But in Christ... God is overcoming that effect of sin and is bringing to us reconciliation, restoration. That in Sam's case, what would it mean for salvation to come to Sam? It would mean that God in Christ is first adopting Sam into his family. That whereas Sam was alone because of his sin, God who forgives him, accepts him, and adopts him into his family. And through that gives him brothers and sisters in Christ and the ability to experience the power of restored relationships with his parents, with his brother, with those he's been in fights with through the power of Christ. That to be saved is to experience reconciliation. It's a different way of looking at it. But when you put these four together, you get a beautiful picture. God has saved us, first of all, from the punishment for sin. God has saved us, second of all, from the power of sin. God has saved us, third, from the guilt of sin. And finally, God has saved us from the effects of sin. That because God viewed Christ as having committed our crimes, He is able to punish Christ and we are saved from the wrath of God. Because God has spent Jesus to purchase us, we have been bought from slavery to sin and brought into God's presence. Because God has declared Jesus guilty. He is free to now declare us in Christ not guilty. And because God has allowed Jesus to die through hostility, He is able through Jesus to bring us into His family and to reconcile us to Him and to others. We have been saved in every possible way a person can be saved whether it's the criminal justice system, the law court, the marketplace, the family, whatever image you want to use, every possible way a person can be saved, God has saved us. For by grace you have been saved, but it will take eternity to come to grips with what all that means for us. See, we've been thinking this morning about our hypothetical example of Sam. But this is not just true for hypothetical examples like Sam. It's true for you and I today. That if you are a believer in Jesus, the punishment for your sins has been taken by Christ. 
enslaved to sin you once were. But God has set you free in Christ. You and I were guilty for the pain and destruction we have caused. But in Christ, we are innocent. And through Christ, we have been adopted into God's family. These are not just abstract, ethereal concepts. They're the reality of what salvation means. And they're not only true for us. They're also true for our hypothetical example, Sam, who, truth be told, is hypothetical in name and a few of the details only, but is actually a real person in his mid-twenties with real problems and with real sin, who this past Thursday came to understand Jesus Christ as having died on a cross for his sins and been raised for new life. And although Sam has a different name, he was here at the first service. And our candle is lit for Sam today. And that as he experiences life now, He is safe, free, innocent, and loved. This is what God does as He saves sinners. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you too are safe, free, innocent, and loved.